Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm a vice president over at Autism Spectrum Therapies, uh, an organization that provides uh, ABA therapy and to individuals with autism, other developmental with disabilities, and just overall support to, to families. Um, also part of the, the Learned family of companies where we work with kids of all different types, all different needs, providing just educational, therapeutic services, you name it. I think at this point we do it, uh, which is which is actually really cool. Um, I am really excited. I, I'm back. It's, uh, it's the beginning of the week as, as we record this, and uh, I just got back from a really great trip to Phoenix. Um, I was really fortunate to get to be uh, a presenter at the Autism Society of Phoenix's uh, annual convention and conference. Um, they just do a really great job. It was it was pretty cool. Uh, I basically spoke for an entire day, got to talk on three different ABA topics, uh, self-management, social skills, and a little bit of uh, behavior interventions for feeding. So some of the things that we actually talked about uh, once upon a time with our friends from Kennedy Krieger uh, and their feeding program, we got to pass along a little bit there. Um, And it was great, really great group of parents. Um, I was really impressed. There was speech pathologists, a whole lot of them there. Um, But most importantly, there was a lot of nurses. A big nursing group came and wanted to learn about autism and wanted to hear behavioral interventions. And they heard about some of the OT and sensory um, interventions out there. And it was just really cool to to see it all come together. And, um, you know, it was a great reminder of hearing different points of view, uh, whether it be the parents of teenagers who are kind of looking for that next step. Um, I had a lot of parents who were there for their three or four-year-old um, child to really figure out, you know, how do they get the ball rolling? I even got to talk to this amazing guy. He was a grandfather and his daughter and his newly diagnosed grandson live in a completely different city, a completely different state. And he just said, I wanted to learn about autism and, and figure out how I can support my daughter. And he was just, uh, just brought a smile to my face of just, you know, how supportive and how invested he was in everything. It was just great, great guy to meet. Um, but the real thing I really took away from the conference is just how different ideas, needs are, you know, understanding. Cause there were, there were definitely some things that, um, we were talking about where, felt that difference um not not from an openness point of view if anything it was it was everyone was so open it was just where are we at you know what what resources do we have what what therapies are out there it just you could feel just the difference and there there's not that continuity um in understanding you know conversations that we've had here on the show um you know 2 years ago 3 years ago are still new in Phoenix in that community, whereas to the guests we had them with, they might have been old hat, and they might have been something they've been talking about for years. Um, 
and and vice versa. There's things they were talking about in Phoenix that um, I've never heard before, and I'm I'm hearing for the first time. So there's a lot of um, regional differences that really came across as I was there. Um, you know, the the one cool thing, as I said, is the amount of openness. It, it felt like we want to learn all of this, we want to hear all of this, we want to ask all of these questions, not just so we get an answer today, but so we can keep asking questions as we go. And it was just just a really fun, great event and a great group to be part of. Um, so any listeners out there, if, if you haven't reached out to the Autism Society of Phoenix and you happen to live in that area, I completely recommend that you do. They do an amazing job. Um, just so impressed by the conference, so impressed by everyone there who was participating in it, running it, just top to bottom. Great, great group, great event. Um, and I recommend you guys really seek them out because they just provide so much great information to, um, to families and, and individuals on the spectrum themselves. Uh, so today I'm joined by Suzanne Hyde. Uh, Suzanne is the executive director at Trellis Services, uh, an ABA program, as well as really a multidisciplinary program for kids with autism and other developmental disabilities um, outside of Baltimore. Uh, Suzanne um, is the executive director of clinical and educational programming at Trellis. Uh, she holds a master's degree in school counseling psychology from Western Maryland College, as well as a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Suzanne began her career at the Kennedy Krieger Institute's LEAP program as a one-to-one aide and ultimately moved up to become a classroom teacher. She has over 15 years of professional experience designing and implementing highly successful treatment programs that meet the academic and behavioral needs of children with autism. Recently, she completed her coursework for her BCBA and is also trained in the implementation of the ADOS, a tool commonly used in diagnosing children with autism. Hey, Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, I want to talk uh, quite a bit about actually the, the Trellis School, uh, but before we get there, um, I'm always curious whenever we have different people on the show, particularly who are kind of in the trenches doing the therapy, uh, just the stories of how you got into the field. So kind of what, you know, you, you started clearly with the Kennedy Krieger Leaps program, and, and I think a lot of our listeners know just how great the Kennedy Krieger program is and, and how much great professional development you get from uh, from their programs. But I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like, what, what led you there? Like, what got you into the field of, of ABA and, and working with kids with autism? Pretty interesting. I knew I wanted to work with children in my undergrad, so I was a psych undergrad. Knew I wanted to work with children, applied for a job at Kennedy Krieger, was really at that point not sure what autism was um, back in the 90s, late 90s. Um, it was around, but it wasn't obviously as uh, affluent as it is right now. So I really wasn't too sure about it. So I got hooked up with the LEAP program, interviewed there, um, really liked the tour of the program, really liked their philosophy and what they were doing with the kids in that program and started as a one-to-one aide. Um, honestly, was scared to death my first couple of days. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but it was so natural. I just yeah. picked it up and two weeks in was completely in love and have been doing it ever since. That's awesome. I, I, it's so funny how many people, um, I think there's a lot of assumptions that, you know, professionals probably all have family members on the spectrum. And it's, I actually think it's really cool how many people are just like, no, this is just something I'm passionate about doing. Like, I love the kids or I love the families. And, 
it's, I feel like that happens so much more than we realize. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I had never up to that point, you know, worked with a student with special needs. Um, yeah. I've done some babysitting, obviously all typical kids through college and things like mm-hmm. that really had no access to kids with special needs. And for whatever reason, um, you know, it really drew me in when I was taking my classes in college that this was sort of the path that I wanted to take. Still, again, wasn't sure when I applied for the job. And when I got in there, yeah. like I said, it was like, this was what I was supposed to do. Nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you, you, you've kept it going. You're at Trellis now, and, and you guys have this awesome school. And you know, one of the big reasons I wanted to talk about the school is, you know, I, I've gotten a chance to see the program. You know, you and I have, have, have gotten a chance to really get to know each other over the last year and a half. Although I got to admit, it feels like five. <laughs> I feel like we've known each other for like way longer than <laughs> we really sure have that's a good at this thing point. Or a bad thing. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing because we probably we had some uh, we definitely had to go through some some interesting transitions and adjustments, um, particularly on on the insurance side of things uh, over the last year. But it just you know brings it closer, ma- makes it easier Absolutely. to uh, to talk and and, and partner. Um, but I've always been impressed by the school uh, primarily because you know being here in California, I. We have, you know, these private schools for kids with autism, but I, I found trellises to be um, just different from what we have here and something that, you know, I've kind of been looking more for in California of, you know, how do you, like, how can this be done? How can we do this? And so to see you guys do it, um, it gets me pretty excited. So first, can you maybe kind of give everyone like a background, an overview of like of the trellis school and, and, and how it's set up? Sure, absolutely. So we are a non-public school. We started um, enrolling in 2007. That was our first year. So we started prior to that, we were a strict clinic. So in 2005, we had an early intervention clinic. It was a pure ABA clinic. Um, We had the methodology of verbal behavior, which we still do in all of our programs. That's the core focus of all of our programs is applied verbal Mm -hmm. behavior. Um, So we had a couple students that were sort of transitioning out of the clinic and into a non-public and we thought, you know what, we, we can do this. We should probably try this and see how it works. Um, Kennedy Krieger, obviously, is another non-public where I started. So we, a lot of us that, you know, used to work there had that foundation, that knowledge. Like you said, it's huge learning ground for all of us. Um, you really get in deep when you're at Kennedy Krieger. You have a lot of professional development. You have a lot of opportunities to learn in that program. Um, so we decided that we were going to open the non-public school, and we did. So we had three students to start. Um, at that point, we were uh, pre-K up through grade two. So since then, we have expanded our grades. We were up through fifth grade for a few years, and then just this past year, opened up our doors through eighth grade. So now we are full nursery two through grade eight. Um, still focusing on applied verbal behavior, we use the BB map as our core curriculum guide for our pre-K up through about second grade kids. And then we also incorporate the essential for living into our programming for our older guys. Um, what part of the problem, or actually not a problem, part of the challenges I think that we face is really kind of taking our kids and putting them through the curriculum, but also having to align what we do with the state standards and the common core and all of those curriculums that are out there. Um, so that's been a little challenging. Um, we've worked really hard, had a lot of consultants in over the years trying to help us to do that, and I think we're finally there to the point where we really do have a good handle on what our kids need in terms of their development and what we need to offer them in terms of their academic skills. 
Yeah, I feel like, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I feel like that's one of the arguments I hear about why an ABA-based school doesn't work. And obviously, I'm not getting this from the ABA community, but I've heard it from other sides of, well, how are you going to meet the educational standards and the state standards? And and that was one of the things that always impressed me about your program is how much time and effort you put into that so that way you had the balance of the ABA with the educational requirements that the state, you know, puts in place and just the general academic, you know, lack of a better, the prowess that you're trying to give the students. Um, right. So, it, you know, I wanted to go back, though, to you've said it a few times, you've talked about applied verbal behavior. And, and you know, I know that's at the core of your program. And so I was hoping you could share, like, why is that so important to you guys? Why is that the core of these programs? Well, I think initially when we started, um, you know, when I was trained at Kennedy, we did very traditional ABA approaches. We did a lot of discrete trial. Um, And while we saw a lot of success with those programs, when we were bringing in our little guys at 18 months, what we found was, you know, the core of where they're learning is through their play. So we really researched a lot of different methodologies and found that verbal behavior was sort of the one that fit our mission the most, that we're really Mm -hmm. focusing on communication and motivation in the natural environment where kids first and foremost learn where their development happens. And it's Mm -hmm. just sort of worked for us um, through the years. You know, we bring in our guys, and and again, it's a little bit more difficult in our school program than in our early intervention program. We can be very pure VB in our, uh, you know, early intervention program. The school is a little bit harder because you are contending with other things that have to happen. They have to be introduced to social studies and science and, and, you know, learning uh, different ways in in math and Mm -hmm. reading and English and all of those things. So you have to immerse them in those um, language areas and in those academic areas. But you can take it wherever it's applicable. So we have really tried over the years to bring the lessons to the children and to bring them to our learners and to where their needs are. So, you know, Mm -hmm. when we're doing social studies and science curriculums, we're working in a natural environment with our kids and making sure that each lesson is really individualized. And I think the Mm -hmm. reason it works for us is because we are up up through third grade, all of our kids are one-to-one. After third grade, Mm -hmm. we start to branch out a little bit. The kids that that are able to be in smaller groups um, have that capacity. They're not all one-to-one in those, um, those classrooms. And what we're really looking for is, you know, to be able to put our kids back into an environment where they're learning alongside typical peers. We don't want to keep right. them in a non-public forever. We want them to be able to be alongside a typical peer and learn from their peers and be able to sit in a classroom with their peers and really gain knowledge in a typical classroom. So we're always working towards that. Um, but I think the foundational skills are what we really need to give them first and foremost. So our nursery two through grade two, that's what we're working on early learner readiness skills, communication skills, making sure that they have those foundations to be able to get through any other academic skills. So it's really the, the prerequisites we're, we're working on at that level. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, and I kind of thought maybe that, as you were saying, being that verbal behavior has uh, more, more benefits and, and a greater generalization potential, easier uh, availability, or I guess pairing with the natural environment, it it, it seemed like that might be one of the strategies of how you're able to get to those um, educational standards. So that way you can still be doing VB while hitting those like social skill goals, as you were saying. 
Absolutely. With, um, you know, you mentioned the the transition um, for, you know, as the kids are getting older, we're moving into the group setting. You also talked about the VB um, becoming or, or the applied verbal behavior being something that was really critical to those core skills. You know, you mentioned third to fourth grade seems like it's a big transition. You're moving into some of the essentials for living um, for some of your older students. You know, is there additional changes or, or developments to the program um, aside from the, um, the staffing ratios when the kids are getting a little bit older? You know, how else does the program adapt to then meet some of those, those needs for the, uh, the older learners? Well, once we're into the third grade, you're also dealing with not only, you know, trying to align your curriculum with whatever the state standards are, but you're also now Mm. looking at testing age. So in third grade in Maryland, Mm. they're now, you know, they now have to be either sitting for what we, you know, used to be the alt, the alternative state testing, which used to be MSA, now is the park assessment. Okay. Um, So we're really, you know, contending with that. Our certificate track kids are on an alt program um, where we can really modify that testing down for them a little bit. We do a lot of artifacts, um, but our kids that are diploma track have to be on the, you know, the park assessment. They have to be grade level on that. So we really cannot modify the curriculum at all. We can certainly make accommodations on their IEP, um, you know, longer testing periods, ascribe, those sorts of things. So we're contending with that as well. So, um, you know, what we really have in in our program, I think, that helps is we have a professional development team that works hand-in-hand with our academic team and our related services team. So they provide hands-on training to our staff where, you know, our educational team can really focus on the curriculum and developing the curriculum in conjunction with the BB map in conjunction with the essential for living. Our professional development team are the ones that are out there training and saying, you know, for example, um, you know, in the verbal behavior methodology, how are you taking MANS and transferring them over to different operants? They're in there immersed day to day with our staff training on not only what it is, but what it looks like. Um, so I think, you know, really our professional development training team is probably the core of what we are doing here in conjunction with the educational and related services. And we all work in such collaboration. You know, we're always meeting so that our SLPs who are working on communication goals aren't just working on communication goals that, that are inherent to, you know, a speech and language perspective, but they're also using foundations of the verbal behavior methodology and really focusing on motivation. They don't, um, they don't do a lot of pullouts for, their, for our kids' push-ins. Our instructors, mm-hmm. our one-to-one instructors, are in the session, so there's carryover that happens between the speech sessions, occupational therapy sessions. So I think it's just a huge collaboration. Um, we found out through trial and error what works, what doesn't work, um, yeah. and through the years have sort of you know focused on what is it that really sets us apart and makes us different, and I think it really is the varying degrees of training and the constant, continuous support and professional development that we offer, not only our clinical staff, but our related services staff, our administrative staff, our educational staff. So it goes across the board. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is, again, one of those things I hear from the other sides is, well, if it's an ABA school, how are they going to get all these other services? You know, how are you going to do all these other things? Because I think there's almost this sense of it becoming a clinic where someone is getting this intensive 30-hour-a-week ABA program. And that's, that's not what you guys are doing. There's so many other disciplines getting, and, and I like, you, like you said it, they're not getting pulled out for these other disciplines. These other disciplines are coming in to make mm-hmm. it a comprehensive day. 
Absolutely. So, and, you know, we do, I mean, we have groups and, and they push into the groups. They, yeah. I mean, we do pull out so when it's necessary. Um, sure. But we do have a team dedicated to just curriculum development, too, and making sure we're aligning what we're doing on the verbal behavior, you know, assessments profile and to the essential for living and making sure um, that those things are aligned and that the kids are being exposed mm-hmm. to grade level curriculum, whether, you know, it's modified mm-hmm. or not, depending on whatever track they're on. You know, we have a core of uh, specialists that are working on the curriculum with the professional development team and the education team to make sure that all of those needs across the board are being met. Um, you mentioned the um, you mentioned something about you know the goal of the program transitioning kids back into their their public education, uh, particularly into gen ed environments. And I and I kind of want to look at that from from two different points of view. The first is as much as the academic achievements, some of the you know. Behavioral and by behavioral in this context, I mean more like probably like challenging behavior point of view is important. You know, social has got to be a huge point of that. I mean, a lot of the kids I've worked with who go into the uh, the non-public school route or the private school route, a lot of times it has to do with social difficulties, um, and that becomes a a bit of a hindrance for them. Um, Absolutely. How do you guys work on the social side of things? Um, given that you know there's not necessarily typical peer models there to socialize with, um, and, and I know there's you know the flip side is there's a big push of typical peer models. That's what we want. That's how we want to teach social skills. Um, how do you guys balance that out to make sure social skills are a, a big part of the program? We actually have a social skills specialist that works directly in contact with our school program. Um, so she provides that training and she provides supervision to our staff members. She runs groups. So we follow the social thinking curriculum by Michelle Garcia Winner. That's one of the the main components of the social skills program that we run. So, you know, we've tried it again, a a lot of different ways. It's a lot of trial and error. We've tried small groups, Mm -hmm. we've tried larger groups. And what we found works is pulling kids out that are in, they may not even be in the same classroom, but kids that are of the, you know, similar skill level in terms of their social skills, we might pull out and do Mm -hmm. a dyad or a triad. So we're really working on individualizing those programs for those kids. Um, you know, over the summer, we actually just started to trial a summer a social skills camp. So we had uh, typically nice. developing peers come in with our guys, and they were actually immersed in the same curriculum with our kiddos, and they worked alongside of them. We had four typical peers here um, three days a week for three hours where they sort of went along with what our kids were doing, and they were really mm-hmm. immersed in that social skills curriculum. I think that was really helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. We do a lot of transition, so when we are ready to say, you know what, we have a student who is probably ready to uh, be in a less restrictive environment, whether that be in a, you know, fully immersed public classroom or if it's a less restrictive non-public, we ask for a lot of transition planning. So we'll send our staff into the school. We'll make sure that we are really facilitating that social development between the kids in the classroom and the kids that we are transitioning Mm -hmm. in. Um, you know, but that's always the double-edged sword is, you know, we want to make sure that we have the equipped resources for our kids to be able to survive and thrive in those environments. Um, and that's one of the downfalls of, you know, having just a pure non-public like we are is that we don't have access to that. Yeah. So we're always looking for ways to bring outside resources in so that we have the availability to have our kids at least some interaction with, you know, socialization for, with typical peers. You know, and and with that kind of next step, that transition, you know, clearly there's been, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the, the school's not been open for all that long. Um, I mean, it's less right. than 10 years. Um, but do you have any, like, early data on the success rate of transitioning kids back to 
uh, a less restrictive environment. We have been taking data on that, actually. Um, and actually, this year, we have three kids that are going back to a less restrictive. So we transitioned one at the end of the summer. We're working on another transition for one that's going to be about three months. And then by the end of the school year, we'll have our third one going back. And that's for just this year. So I would say, you know, we're, we're a pretty small non-public. Right now, we have 34 students. Um, so over the years, I would have to probably look back at the data. But I would say we've probably transitioned. And we keep about that number. We had a big jump. Um, two years ago where we had, you know, we were about 25 kids and jumped up to 35. Yeah. Um, but prior to that, you know, from 2007 to 2014, we had about 20 to 25 kids. And I would say we probably transitioned about seven back to a less restrictive before this year. And so now we have another three. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like every year transition, like 15, 20% of the kids back ballparkish. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's great. You know, one of the things that I think it's kind of interesting, and I don't know, it's it's one of these things where it's like, I know we both kind of have like our halves of the experiences. You know, in California, I feel like there's a big push to have ABA programs come into the public school and embed themselves as like their one-to-one for a student um, rather than go to the, the NPS side. Um, on the flip side, I see benefits to the Trellis program because it's got it has its own structure controls in some ways i could see it being easier to fade out supports on a longer scale um doing that right. where you kind of take a step back put everything in place and kind of rebuild back up um so i'm just kind of wondering like you know your thoughts like are, are, do you see benefit to one versus the other um and uh is you know the whole idea of this least restrictive environment? How does that factor into your to your thinking, or if if at all? I see benefits to both, as long as you know on our end we we sort of think of it as a continuum of care. So if you think mm-hmm. of trellis in terms of our non-public school and our early intervention clinic as probably the most restrictive part of things. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you know, we're intensive here. We're one-to-one. We are completely immersed in this philosophy day in and day out, and we, we take it from there. Um, the next level would be maybe, you know, what Maryland has is partnership programs or managed classrooms mm-hmm. where you have trellis students in a, let's just say, Baltimore County classroom where trellis manages that program, manages the staff. Um, but, again, it gives the kids access to typical peers. So maybe they have lunch together or they have specials together where they're in music or gym class or things like that. The right. next level of that would be a consultative classroom where it would be students in whatever county program they're on, but we're providing the training and consultations of the staff. And then the third part would just – or the fourth part would just be sort of a ongoing consultative model where we're coming in, we're checking in, we're making sure that the training program is really effective. So that's our continuum of care that we're always trying to promote out to the county. Um, the flip side of that is that the counties sometimes are trying to do it in-house where they're saying, hey, you know what, we can do this. We have DCBAs that can provide these services, which are invaluable to our students. Um, sometimes I worry, to be honest, that the caseloads of the DCBAs are a little bit too much, so the individualized attention for the students isn't really there instead of yeah. training specifically on one child or on a profile of students. It's more like I'm going to manage these few classrooms and then, you know, provide services. So I think as the counties are pushing into that mentality and pushing into that philosophy, I'm sure with that is going to be coming, you know, the professional development of staff and BCPA is coming in and really providing that oversight of behavior management to the education team, which is necessary. 
Um, so I see, I see benefits to each. You know, we, we certainly, like I said, don't have the access to typical peers, which is what our kids need, especially when they're, you know, mastering part of their VB map or they're really coming up on, you know, a lot of yeah. age appropriate and, and their academic goals are really grade level where they should be. And now the next step is, can we generalize this into a less restrictive environment? Yeah, I just I feel like as I kind of look at these different programs, you you have this spectrum that is autism, and and I think that if you know I know this isn't like the most scientific way of looking at it, but if you think about the way interventions work, you you kind of like are moving kids along this spectrum on on a broader scale of skill development, and they're building all these different skills. And I feel like our school systems, they're just like big steps. You kind of have to take these leaps, and it doesn't necessarily go along that spectrum. And what I Mm -hmm. find that has happened for me, because a lot of times there is this big jump. It's, okay, let's bring in Rob and his team, and they're going to maybe, you know, maybe I provide the one-to-one. Maybe I provide the supervision. Maybe I provide all of this. But there's times where I kind of would love to be able to say, let me just kind of work with this kid and kind of get at a real control. And one of the most effective programs I've ever put together is we literally created like a classroom within a classroom for this one kid. So I had the teacher running all of the academics, but we really ran like the instruction of it. And it was a real partnership. It was, it was great because it was a partnership between me and the teacher um, to make sure we had the ABA and the education in sync but it required such um, a bubble around us. And once we Mm -hmm. did that for six months to a year, we then we were able to see massive social gains, massive improvement in the academics. You know, all of these other things could happen. Um, But that was like extraordinary circumstances that allowed that to come together by the parents, by the district, by the teacher, by myself. And it feels like there's just these big leaps of you either have to be in an NPS and ideally you find an NPS like the Trellis School, which there is few and far between from my experiences. Or you have to like get yourself the best you can of this specialized program while following these specific rules and we kind of adjust everything on the back end where we can. It feels like a big gap to me regardless of like who's providing what from like a, a professional point of view. And so I, I really struggle with that. You know, what, what are the options for our kids? And, and it gets me thinking, is the kids better off being at trellis, a trellis school for, for a little while, getting that foundation, as you described, and then taking these steps to move less and less and less and less restrictive. It's, Absolutely. you know, obviously it's not for and every kid, but it's starting to make more sense. Yep, it, it absolutely is, and that's sort of, you know, what we said with the continuum of care, we are trying to develop a model that says, you know, we know, you know, education, it, it comes down to, you know, obviously beneficial for the students in terms of what their academic gains are, but there's also a lot of money involved. So the counties, of course, are trying yeah. to make sure that, you know, they're providing whatever services are necessary for these children to learn and engage and really be valuable members of society, but they want to pull it back and, and do what we do in-house. And sometimes that works really well, and sometimes it doesn't. Like you said, it's yeah. on the grand scheme of things, and sometimes it's a leap. Every once in a while, you'll get into a situation where you have a really phenomenal teacher that you're working with, and she sees the benefit or he sees the benefit of, I'm going to work on the, ad, you know, the academic, the educational programming, and I'm going to let these guys come in and tell me how to do this behaviorally. Um, and they don't get hung up on every single you know, minute of the IEP being devoted to 
you know, uh, curriculum that isn't modified. Because let's be honest, if I'm trying to teach a child how to really gain valuable academic skills, they have to have prerequisite skills. And a lot of that comes down to behavior and and how are we training behavior and how are we eliciting behavior and how are we evoking behavior and looking through all of those things that really behavior analysts look at on a whole scale and break down into smaller parts. Um, So once in a while, you'll have teachers that are so on board with that. And then what you've done is you've trained this teacher to be a thinker to be a thinker that's not just mm-hmm. looking at a curriculum guide and writing an IEP based off of a child that has a profile that's similar to this child. They're really breaking down those skills on the IEP and they can write phenomenal IEPs that are meaningful for our kids that aren't just academic-based, but they have that behavior component into every single one of their goals and their measurable goals and you can really see progress. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, it, it's not on a grand scale. It's not on a grand scale yet. Will it be there one day? I, I certainly do hope so. Um, but, yeah, so for those kids that we have to pull back and say they actually can't function in this classroom because they need such individualized attention, that's where your non-public yeah. come in and really focus on that. And then, of course, we're always looking at where are we getting them, how are we pushing them, where are they on the BD map, what level are they on, can we push a little bit harder, can we build academic, can we build independence? Um, because we want them to be obviously in a social situation, but we're certainly not willing to send them back to that environment until they're absolutely ready for it. Yeah, and I'm sure there's always that balance of, you know, there's times the kid's ready for it, but also the kid doesn't want to leave or the parent doesn't want to leave because right. they've seen all this progress and they grow an Absolutely. attachment. Yeah, or yep. yeah, exactly. Or they can't find the right fit. So, I mean, it, and, and that just to me is like those one of those continuous struggles. Um, I mean, I heard a lot about it. I just got back from from Phoenix where I was presenting at a conference last week. And that was one of the big points that I heard brought up, like during all the breaks, is people talking about the right classroom. My kid's in the right classroom today, but I can't find the right classroom for tomorrow. And that was like exactly. a big thing. Yeah. Well, I think we're we're pretty much uh, towards the end. We've uh, we've been chatting like we always do. Um, <laughs> I want to make sure everyone knows how to find you guys, uh, particularly families in the in the Baltimore area, because as I said, I I just I love your program, I love your school. I mean, I really wanted you to come on and talk about it because I do find it to be unique. And and you know, at this point where I've gotten to see ABA in action and education in action up close in like six, seven different states, and, and talking to all these different families and a whole bunch of others, I haven't seen anything or, or, or really a whole much of anything like it. So where can people find out more about Trellis? Where can people find out more about the school? We are, of course, we have a website. It's www.trellisservices.com. We also have a face Trellis Services. Um, and our phone number is 443-330-7900. So those are all places that, you know, they can look us up and find us. We're on the web. Facebook's always a great place to find us um, because it links us to other agencies and, and, um, you know, supporters of us that we really refer to a lot for our families. Do you guys do tours or anything like that for a family who's like, hey, I just want to kind of get a feel for it? Yeah, we have an open-door policy. We want our parents to come in. It's hard to describe what we do over the phone, um, you know, or even in an email. So we are always willing to have um, parents come in to see what actually verbal behavior looks like and how it's implemented in the school program because it is hard to describe. So when they come in and see it in action yep. and see our kids running through the door and happy and really excited to be here, it kind of puts it in perspective for them. 
I'm sure when they see that gym area where like the OTs are working, <laughs> like they probably kind of like have a smile on their face right there because that's kind of oh, a yeah. cool room in the back where like the kids are running Absolutely. around and doing all the the OT and the the AP stuff. So that's that's awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much part. for taking the time. Thank you for chatting thank with you. me. Thank you. Um, it's always fun to, to catch up. I know we, uh, we, we probably, uh, I owe you a phone call just to, to catch up anyway. So I'm glad we at least got to start, uh, via, uh, via the podcast. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Cool. I really well, appreciate it. Uh, anytime. We'll definitely have to have you come back on and talk a little bit more, maybe about the, uh, the, uh, love to learn side of things that you guys are doing. Cause that would be cool to Sounds share as good. well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, everyone, for being here today. Uh, it was really fun just to, to talk to a friend. Uh, sometimes I get to you know, talk to new people who I've never talked to before, and, and I'm kind of learning things for the first time. Uh, as I said, I've, I've known Suzanne now for about a year and a half, two years, and it's just kind of fun to talk to a friend about and you know, the things we talk about on the side and get to have them now with an audience and, and go back and forth on some of these ideas or principles or, um, you know, I guess just, you know, our vision of how schools should look or ABA should look, um, how therapy should look. So uh, I always get to enjoy, you know, giving you guys a little bit like behind the scenes, behind the curtain look at, you know, what we talk about because I'd say probably 80% of this is, is, you know, us talking no differently than we would if, uh, if we were just kind of figuring out how do we make this program better or that program better. So it's, it's really cool. Um, we will be back. Got a, another couple of guests lined up. As I said last show, we're kind of in that final countdown. Uh, as of today, I'm about four weeks away from uh, from my daughter getting born. So I'm uh, going to put a couple more shows in uh, in for you guys before I take a bit of a leave to, uh, to go spend some time with her. Um, but uh, we will talk to you soon. And uh, have a good one. Take care, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at more info at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.